This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. Chapter 48 Sugar and Postage. One day on the street I encountered the man whom, of all men, I most wished to see, Horace Bixby, formerly pilot under me, or rather over me, now captain of the great steamer, city of Baton Rouge, the latest and swiftest addition to the anchor line. The same slender figure, the same tight curls, the same springy step, the same alertness, the same decision of eye and answering decision of hand, the same erect military bearing. Not an inch gained or lost in girth, not an ounce gained or lost in weight, not a hair turned. It is a curious thing to leave a man thirty-five years old and come back at the end of twenty-one years and find him still only thirty-five. I have not had an experience of this kind before, I believe. There were some crow's feet, but they counted for next to nothing, since they were inconspicuous. His boat was just in. I had been waiting several days for her, proposing to return to St. Louis in her. The captain and I joined a party of ladies and gentlemen, guests of Major Wood, and went down the river fifty-four miles in a swift tug to ex-Governor Warmouth's sugar plantation. Strung along below the city were a number of decayed, ramshackly, superannuated old steamboats, not one of which had I ever seen before. They had all been built and worn out and thrown aside since I was here last. This gives one a realizing sense of the frailness of a Mississippi boat and the briefness of its life. Six miles below town a fat and battered brick chimney, sticking above the magnolias and live oaks, was pointed out as the monument erected by an appreciative nation to celebrate the Battle of New Orleans, Jackson's victory over the British, January 8, 1815. The war had ended, the two nations were at peace, but the news had not yet reached New Orleans. If we had had the cable telegraph in those days, this blood would not have been spilt, those lives would not have been wasted, and, better still, Jackson would probably never have been president. We have gotten over the harms done us by the War of 1812, but not over some of those done us by Jackson's presidency. The Warmouth Plantation covers a vast deal of ground, and the hospitality of the Warmouth Mansion is graduated to the same large scale. We saw steam plows at work here for the first time. The traction engine travels about on its own wheels till it reaches the required post. Then it stands still, and by means of a wire rope pulls the huge plow towards itself two or three hundred yards across the field, between the rows of cane. The thing cuts down into the black mold a foot and a half deep. The plow looks like a fore-and-aft brace of a Hudson River steamer inverted. When the negro steersman sits on one end of it, that end tilts down near the ground, while the other sticks up high in air. This great seesaw goes rolling and pitching like a ship at sea, and it is not every circus rider that could stay on it. The plantation contains 2,600 acres, 650 are in cane, and there is a fruitful orange grove of 5,000 trees. 
the cane is cultivated after a modern and intricate scientific fashion, too elaborate and complex for me to attempt to describe, but it lost forty thousand dollars last year. I forget the other details. However, this year's crop will reach ten or twelve hundred tons of sugar. Consequently, last year's loss will not matter. These troublesome and expensive scientific methods achieve a yield of a ton and a half, and from that to two tons to the acre, which is three or four times what the yield of an acre was in my time. The drainage ditches were everywhere alive with little crabs, fiddlers. One saw them scampering sideways in every direction whenever they heard a disturbing noise. Expensive pests, these crabs, for they bore into the levees and ruin them. The great sugar-house was a wilderness of tubs and tanks and vats, and filters, pumps, pipes, and machinery. The process of making sugar is exceedingly interesting. First you heave your cane into the centrifugals and grind out the juice, then run it through the evaporating pan to extract the fiber, then through the bone filter to remove the alcohol, then through the clarifying tanks to discharge the molasses then through the granulating pipe to condense it, then through the vacuum-pan to extract the vacuum. It is now ready for market. I have jotted these particulars down from memory. The thing looks simple and easy. Do not deceive yourself. To make sugar is really one of the most difficult things in the world, and to make it right is next to impossible. If you will examine your own supply every now and then for a term of years, and tabulate the result, you will find that not two men in twenty can make sugar without getting sand into it. We could have gone down to the mouth of the river and visited Captain Ede's great work, the jetties, where the river has been compressed between walls, and thus deepened to twenty-six feet. But it was voted useless to go, since at this stage of the water everything would be covered up and invisible. We could have visited that ancient and singular berg, Pilot Town, which stands on stilts in the water, so they say, where nearly all communication is by skiff and canoe, even to the attending of weddings and funerals, and where the littlest boys and girls are as handy with the oar as unamphibious children are with a velocipede. We could have done a number of other things, but on account of limited time we went back home. The sail up the breezy and sparkling river was a charming experience, and would have been satisfyingly sentimental and romantic but for the interruptions of the tug's pet parrot, whose tireless comments upon the scenery and the guests were always this worldly and often profane. He had also a superabundance of the discordant ear-splitting metallic laugh common to his breed, a machine-made laugh, a Frankenstein laugh, with the soul left out of it. He applied it to every sentimental remark, and to every pathetic song. He cackled it out with hideous energy after home again, home again from a foreign shore, and said he wouldn't give a damn for a tug-load of such rot. Romance and sentiment cannot long survive this sort of discouragement, so the singing and talking presently ceased, which so delighted the parrot that he cursed himself hoarse for joy. Then the male members of the party moved to the forecastle to smoke and gossip. There were several old steamboat men along, and I learned from them a great deal of what had been happening to my former river friends during my long absence. 
I learned that a pilot whom I used to steer for is become a spiritualist, and for more than fifteen years has been receiving a letter every week from a deceased relative through a New York spiritualist medium named Manchester. Postage, graduated by distance, from the local post office in Paradise to New York, five dollars. From New York to St. Louis, three cents. I remember Mr. Manchester very well. I called on him once ten years ago with a couple of friends, one of whom wished to inquire after a deceased uncle. This uncle had lost his life in a peculiarly violent and unusual way half a dozen years before. A cyclone blew him some three miles and knocked a tree down with him, which was four feet through at the butt and sixty-five feet high. He did not survive this triumph. At the séance just referred to, my friend questioned his late uncle through Mr. Manchester, and the late uncle wrote down his replies, using Mr. Manchester's hand and pencil for that purpose. The following is a fair example of the question asked, and also of the sloppy twaddle in the way of answers, furnished by Manchester under the pretense that it came from the spectre. If this man is not the paltriest fraud that lives, I owe him an apology. Question. Where are you? Answer. In the spirit world. Q. Are you happy? A. Very happy, perfectly happy. Q. How do you amuse yourself? A. Conversation with friends and other spirits. Q. What else? A. Nothing else, nothing else is necessary. Q. What do you talk about? A. About how happy we are and about friends left behind in the earth, and how to influence them for their good. Q. When your friends in the earth all get to the spirit-land, what shall you have to talk about then? Nothing but about how happy you all are? No reply. It is explained that spirits will not answer frivolous questions. Q. How is it that spirits that are content to spend an eternity in frivolous employments, and accept it as happiness, are so fastidious about frivolous questions upon the subject? No reply. Q. Would you like to come back? A. No. Q. Would you say that under oath? A. Yes. Q. What do you eat there? A. We do not eat. Q. What do you drink? A. We do not drink. Q. What do you smoke? A. We do not smoke. Q. What do you read? A. We do not read. Q. Do all the good people go to your place? A. Yes. Q. You know my present way of life. Can you suggest any additions to it in the way of crime that will reasonably ensure my going to some other place? A. No reply. Q. When did you die? A. I did not die. I passed away. Q. Very well, then. When did you pass away? How long have you been in the spirit land? A. We have no measurements of time here. Q. Though you may be indifferent and uncertain as to dates and times in your present condition and environment, this has nothing to do with your former condition. You had dates, then. One of these is what I ask for. You departed on a certain day in a certain year. Is not this true? A. Yes. Q. Then name the day of the month. Much fumbling with pencil on the part of the medium, accompanied by violent spasmodic jerkings of his head and body, 
for some little time. Finally, explanation to the effect that spirits often forget dates, such things being without importance to them. Q. Then this one has actually forgotten the date of its translation to the spirit land? This was granted to be the case. Q. This is very curious. Well, then, what year was it? More fumbling, jerking, idiotic spasms on the part of the medium. Finally, explanation to the effect that the spirit has forgotten the year. Q. This is indeed stupendous. Let me put one more question, one last question to you, before we part to meet no more. For even if I fail to avoid your asylum, a meeting there will go for nothing as a meeting, since by that time you will easily have forgotten me and my name. Did you die a natural death, or were you cut off by a catastrophe? A. After long hesitation and many throes and spasms, natural death. This ended the interview. My friend told the medium that when his relative was in this poor world, he was endowed with an extraordinary intellect and an absolutely defectless memory, and it seemed a great pity that he had not been allowed to keep some shred of these for his amusement in the realms of everlasting contentment, and for the amazement and admiration of the rest of the population there. This man had plenty of clients, has plenty yet. He receives letters from spirits located in every part of the spirit world, and delivers them all over this country through the United States mail. These letters are filled with advice, advice from spirits, who don't know as much as a tadpole, and this advice is religiously followed by the receivers. One of these clients was a man whom the spirits, if one may thus plurally describe the ingenious Manchester, were teaching how to contrive an improved railway-car wheel. It is coarse employment for a spirit, but it is higher and wholesomer activity than talking for ever about how happy we are. End of chapter 48